I'd invite you to look at number 386 in the United Methodist Hymnal. It's, although you might not have known that hymn we just sang, you definitely would have not have known number 386, Come Thou Traveler Unknown. It's one of, it was regarded by Isaac Watts and John Wesley as Charles's greatest text. On the next page, 387, you'll see all its verses. And on the top, to the right of the page, it'll tell you the story uh, about the text. It's, it's a remarkable story of Charles's own journey in faith and, in some sense, ours. Read through the prism of today's text, wrestling with the stranger in the night. So if you get bored to this in, the, in the sermon, you can go read those verses instead. But I warn you, I can see every one of you who does that. <laughs> Except for Derek. <laughs> Wesley calls upon the story of Jacob's dark night of the soul to, to, to describe his own journey in faith. But who I ask thee, who art thou? Tell me thy name and tell me now. It is a demand that haunts our lives and haunts our faith. The demand to know the unknowable on our terms. The demand to have life on our own terms. And it must be a desperate moment if Jacob is willing to reveal his name to a stranger in the middle of the night. In the ancient world, words held power. And names especially held great power. A name revealed something about your very self and gave the person to whom you revealed it power over you. Especially in the biblical tradition, they, the names reveal the character of the name, that Jacob was the name of a grabber. Literally, Jacob means the heel holder, the one who advances at the expense of another. That name recalls the first moment in the Bible when we met Jacob and our worship now a number of weeks ago. As so much of ourselves is shaped in our early years to understand Jacob's moment on the Jabbok, we must go back now and hear about his early life stories. And one day he is home making stew. And his brother Esau storms in, exhausted from the field. Give me some food. I imagine, I imagine these two in this moment as sort of hungry teenagers. Give me some food. I'll give it to you, Jacob says, if you sell me your rights for being the first of us born. The brothers are twins, as you recall. Esau, the first out of the womb by a length of a little arm and a heel, Esau seems to have grown up to be not such a complex thinker, though. He's hungry. The deal is done. He is also, as we shall see in a bit, quick to anger. Now, Jacob looks pretty good. It's hard to muster much sympathy for Esau, unless, unless you have been gullible or foolish at some moment in your own life, I'm sure that's never happened. It happens to me almost every other day. 
But Jacob succeeds as many of our heroes do, and as we hope to do, through wit, ambition, taking the best advantage of opportunities, admirable qualities. And it may be that Jacob is, in fact, the better choice of the two to carry the blessing of the family name, which will ultimately be the blessing of the gospel of God with us. My guess is that is Rebecca's point, Rebecca, his mother's point of view too. Because it is in the next part of the story that Jacob, with some help from his mother, sinks to simple dishonesty to achieve what he wants. It's the final It's the Father's final spoken blessing that matters most, and the time has come, the family gathered. But you see, Isaac, the father, loved Esau the most. So Jacob, disguised as his brother, tricks the old blind man on his deathbed, and the blessing is given, and once words pass into reality, they cannot in the ancient world be returned, and that's Occasionally true today. Father, haven't you saved a blessing for me? Esau will plead. It's a heart-wrenching moment, and his father does bless Esau, but it's not the family blessing. In a sermon I deeply admire, and to which the title of this sermon is owed, Frederick Beekner remarks that it is Jacob's kind of dishonesty that is most likely the kind of dishonesty that tempts us. It is not a noble truth, but a truth just the same, that the sort of dishonesty that tempts us is the kind that stays within the limits of most of the rules, the sort of thing that's okay if you can get away with it, It's just the sort of behavior that will get you a long way in this world. The shrewd and the ambitious, those who know what they want and direct all their effort to getting it, do pretty well. And we elect a few of them to public office. And this is where we left Jacob last week, on the run from the rage of his brother. Even in exile over the next couple of chapters, Jacob manages to control his destiny. He seems to be able to wrestle the blessing out of life itself. Years have passed, and in the measure of cattle and sheep and wives and children, 12 children, in fact, which will become a key number from here on out, Jacob returns from his exile to finally meet his brother, a wealthy man, but mostly at expense of his father-in-law Laban. But there is in the end one thing that lies beyond our grasp, beyond his grasp, the one thing that lies beyond our control, the heart of another. Esau has come out for the reunion with his brother with a company of 400 men. I'd be worried, too. (laughs) Hatred or love, which will it be at dawn? And Jacob, in true character, 
does all he can to set the table for the encounter in his favor. He sends all he owns across the river ahead of him, placing between him and Esau herds and camels and gifts and wealth, his wives and his children. It's almost as if he's giving back the blessing that he stole. And he spends the night safely by himself on the other side of the river. Night comes. Jacob is alone. And he is attacked. Is it his brother? Is it a brigand? Is it fear of his own consciousness he's wrestling with? The text is ambiguous on this point. It begins by saying a man. And we don't like ambiguities in our Bibles, in our time. In our time, ambiguity discredits a story. I have come to understand that I think this quest for certainty, which ultimately renders itself in fundamentalism, is a part of our own grabbing after God, our own reality. In fact, the ambiguities in the biblical text are holy moments. They become places between heaven and earth where we can journey into the mystery of our faith in an ungraspable God. And it is really only in the face of that journey that we are healed. But I digress. Back to Jacob. Jacob has been wrestling all night with who? Now, many of us have been afraid of the next day. It often happens to me on Saturday night. So it could be simply his own guilt, his own consciousness, his own fear, own uncertainty of what's going to happen the next day. Perhaps he's even discovered in that dark night of his soul that In fact, of all his achievements, everything he's accomplished, he's dead inside. As if his own sins and guilt have driven nails into his own palms. And to our surprise, it is there, in the midst of his turmoil, he is attacked. Attacked by something the people of Israel will say is divine. All through the night, Jacob struggles. And in the end, by sheer force of will, it looks as if he once again will come out on top. But then in the last moment, the reversal, a wrench of the thigh, and an instant, it's over. Jacob is broken forever. Yet he holds on still, (laughs) struggling, gasping for life, gasping for faith. Give me your blessing. My name is Jacob. You know me. Tell me your name and tell me now. And now at last, this is a story of faith. For like love, 
The only blessing worth its merit is the one you cannot earn for yourself. We also, we so often understand blessing or success or love or knowledge of God as something we grab hold of, something to achieve, something that can be ours if we study enough, if I have enough books in my study, if we pray faithfully enough, if we give generously enough. But perhaps the, perhaps the dark night of the soul begins when the facts catch up to us that in the end we cannot possess, we cannot control another's heart. Perhaps not our own, certainly not God's. And maybe it is so hard for folks to believe in God in our time because we have come to think of faith as just another category of our grabbing hold of life on our terms. Most of us believe only what we can comprehend and have compassion upon the world because that is the faith in which we find ourselves in this century. We are in some ways now on the shore of that river at night. It seems, though, that the oldest use of the word believe is much closer to the meaning of the word trust. Like love, it is born in the moment when we give up the illusion of our mastery of ourselves and entrust ourselves to something we cannot see or fully comprehend. We've entrusted ourselves, perhaps, to the person sitting next to us. We entrust our spirit to a higher power. In our loneliest and most desperate moments, when the illusion of our grip on life has been shattered, it is there that we are freed to turn and come face to face with the unreturnable, unearnable gift of that fearsome, unassailable love of God for the world. And so in an instant that Jacob and us is broken and the first stirring of the faith of our ancestors can be born. In our text, Jacob is given a new name, Israel, and sent limping with joy into the dawn. It is a limp that all of us will carry, all of us who at one time or another thought ourselves to be masters of our world. It is a magnificent defeat of the human will. Beekner's words, power, success, and happiness as the world knows them are his or hers who will fight for them hard enough. But peace, love, and joy are only from God. Just remember the last glimpse we have of Jacob limping home against the great conflagration of the dawn. Remember Jesus of Nazareth staggering on broken feet out of the tomb 
toward the resurrection of new life, bearing on his body the mark of the defeat that is victory, the magnificent defeat of the human soul in the arms of God.